imagine, demand and build a world transformed. Okay, so um, can I welcome everybody to um, this fringe meeting? Uh, my name's John MacDonald. I'm the Labour MP for Hazen Harlington. Um, thanks for coming along. Um, this is part of the World Transformed series of sessions over, over this month. And it is on behalf as well of an initiative we launched a couple of months ago um, called Claim the Future. And it's about claiming the future, about discussing what sort of society do, do we want. I'll come on to that in a, in a minute. But let me just um, take you through some of the basics of the instructions that um, I need to just let people know. Okay. Um, there's, I just want to go through, I'm sorry if I'm bumbling over this, but let's just go through it. First of all, to make the session more accessible, we'll be using a live transcription service called Otter. Attendees using Otter will have to follow a link and open the transcript as a separate window. The link will be shared in the chat box by a tech, one of our tech volunteers. Um, and if you're having difficulties, message the tech volunteer on the chat. Okay. <laughs> and again, can I just can I thank Nikki, who's doing the signage at the moment, and her colleague will be on shortly as well. But also thank all the tech volunteers. It's wonderful. Secondly, look, let me just say on behalf of the, the, the world transformed, um, it relies on your support to continue to grow. Uh, and it's the great work that they're doing. Um, it's around political education, engaging people in the debate. And it's such, I just think it's a breathtakingly fresh initiative that has been going on the last couple of years. And it's really involved people. I can't, I can't um, express my admiration for the work they've done enough, really. And they're just saying so far they've told me 94 people have signed up to the supporters network just since the beginning of this festival but they need 60 more monthly supporters to reach their target and sustain their year-round political education projects and run the next festival so if you're able to spare a small monthly donation please consider supporting it and you'll see it um you'll see on the chat we'll put up how you can do that basically okay um, just go to the World Transform and, uh, as set out on the chat and you'll be able to sign up. Please do, because we want to keep the World Transform work going all year now, not just at party conference. Uh, and lastly, let me just go through a few chat principles. Um, let me get this right. Um, we want every, obviously, we want everyone to feel welcome in these spaces and for everyone's voices to be heard. Um, so please bear in mind that when engaging in the chat, please don't use inappropriate, rude, or unkind language, and please don't spam. Participants will stray, who stray from these principles may be prevented from further posting in the chat and comment box, but hopefully, hopefully this won't happen. I don't think it will in this discussion. But if you do have a question or a comment for one of our speakers, please do fire away, and we'll try and include them in the Q&A at the end. Um, but also, actually, on some of those, if we can't include them, I'll take those away and with the other participants in the discussions today, um, we'll get back to you, okay? Because we want to make sure people are fully involved. So let's now just go straight to the session, shall we? Um, let me just quickly go through the background of this in terms of the world transform. Um, 
Um, I was speaking at an event last night, Progressive International, and I started off by saying, look, it's been a startling last 10 months. You know, it has been. You know, loss of the election was, you know, a hell of a blow. Um, but then straight into the pandemic, and there's been, been some real tragedies as a result of that. And now we're on the edge of, of a recession. And, and of course, we've got the overhanging all the time is the threat of climate change. And actually what that's done, and it's interesting really, is that the problems of the pandemic in particular were so serious that actually it generated, I think it brought out the best in many people, absolute selfless acts of mutual support and solidarity. But also um, it actually asked, started, people started questioning the society that we live in, the economic arrangements of our society. And recognized, I think, it was almost like a pressure test on our economy and our society. The weaknesses and the failures, just how much our, well, neoliberal capitalist system has failed us. Austerity, ill-preparing our NHS or social care to deal with the pandemic, the precarious nature of so many people's lives in terms of the work that they do, the income that they have, and the real poverty many experience, and also the grotesque levels of inequality within our society. But what's been, what's the good that's come out of this is, first of all, I think a real willingness, if not a demand for change, but also ideas for radical change. And claim the future's purpose was to say, look, there's all these ideas coming forward. There's really good discussions going on. Policy experts, think tanks, all I think emanating some brilliant ideas about the sort of society that we want. And alongside that, you've got others who are really just hard campaigning. You know, the renters, the renters union, ACORN campaigning to stop evictions. And the, uh, the trade unions now that are campaigning uh, to protect jobs, unite battling with BA to protect jobs. The Tate strikers, who the PCS are out on strike today demonstrating all of those trade union campaigns to protect jobs, but also demanding a sort of economy that we need for the future to give people a decent wage levels, decent conditions of work, and a say at work as well. But also the whole range of other groups, the Women's Budget Group, the Socialist Health Association, we own it, all campaigning now for proper social care, national care service. And of course, you know, the magnificent Black Lives Matter movement, which is brought to everyone's attention now, the grotesque levels of racial inequality and injustice. I just want to pay tribute to them. And yes, Extinction Rebellion and all the other environmental campaigns that are reminding us that overhanging it all is the threat of climate change. Now, claim the, claim the future. The idea was, was actually to let us claim the future now. Let us bring together those ideas and those campaigns so that when we're campaigning, all our ideas are really thoroughly worked out, that we have the alternative, that we can convince people and that actually we can create a climate of opinion so that no matter no matter who's the leader of the Labour Party, no matter who um, is representing us, actually recognises this is the way forward, this is the sort of society that we have to create, but also here's the programme of policies that actually we need to, to create that new society. And what's interesting, you know, the 2017 manifesto, the 2019 manifesto of the Labour Party, you know, they were terrific. They were great. They laid the foundations of socialist discussion for the future. What sort of society do we need? What sort of socialism do we want? But actually, the pandemic and the threat of climate change 
means we mean actually we need more radical solutions, more radical than 2017-19 manifestos, and that's what's coming out of our discussions around claim the future. We've been hosting a whole range of Zoom meetings, discussions, working groups. We've been publishing some papers, and we've got a website as well. Uh, and the idea is just bringing those thinkers and those campaigners together. And I, I just think uh, the creativity that we have in our movement now is absolutely staggering. But also, I tell you what's made me so much more optimistic as well is, well, the new intake in Parliament. Uh, the new members of the socialist campaign group we've got a we've got a new generation that's come forward and i just they inspire me they've they've given me such hope for the future in terms of not just the labor party but the way in which we can develop socialist practice within our society and so what we thought we'd do on this range is bring a, a, a few of them together um because they're working on different aspects of the sort of policies that we need and the campaigning that we need to develop a, a new and socialist society that will tackle climate change, give us the future, and make sure that we create a society based upon social justice and equality. So I want to introduce a few of them now. Um, uh, our first speaker is Apsana. Apsana, um, you'll know uh, many of you because she came into Parliament at the last general election and just immediately made her mark. Just immediately made a mark. Her, her, uh, ability to argue the case, both in Parliament, in terms of what uh, local constituency and her community needs, has been second to none. I think she's made incredible impression within the House of Commons. But more importantly, wider than that, she's been able to raise some incredibly key issues uh, about the need for change. And Afsana has been campaigning and working on housing in particular, um, the problems that we face in terms of housing, the way in which we can go forward to tackle homelessness, and make sure everybody has a decent roof over their heads. So let me pass over to Apsana and she'll talk us some, some of the issues she's been dealing with and the future work that we need to undertake. Apsana. Thank you so much, John, and um, greetings to everybody who's joined us today. And I just want to sort of start by saying thank you to The World Transformed and Claim the Future for putting on this um, important event on a very important issue. Um, so when it really begin with, I'd say, I mean, you know, we, in the labour movement have really sort of long argued that many of the essential things in life should be provided collectively and funded out of general taxation and be free at the point of use for everyone. And, you know, we talk about sort of universal basic services, which was one of the big sort of ideas at the heart of the 2019 manifesto. Um, it didn't just mean talking about protecting the free services that we have, but rather it was a big vision to extend the services we should all have access to. And despite the criticisms reported by the right media during the elections, this never really sounded like a wish list to me, but rather a foundation for a decent life for everybody in the 21st century. And, you know, yet years of neoliberal governments have drained so much hope and belief out of politics. And, uh, you know, people far too often are told that they only deserve to have the most basic of basic services and some not even this. So I think it's just really important to take a moment to sort of acknowledge the leadership of Jeremy, Jeremy Corbyn, John and Diane Abbott for their level of ambition and, you know, really for saying to people, you know, you deserve better than what you're getting at the moment. Um, and as John has said, today I've, be, I've been asked to sort of address housing and my constituency, Poplar and Limehouse, has one of the highest average rents in London, while at the same time having some of the highest rates of 
poverty in the entire country. And it's a toxic combination of that, which means those on low incomes face an increased risk of homelessness. You know, to put it simply, we just don't have enough social housing. Instead, we have, you know, emboldened landlords and greedy developers who are socially cleansing our city and a housing system that is essentially broken. Um, and, and the coronavirus crisis, of course, has made that situation much worse. Um, you know, as such, we've been sort of campaigning for rent freezes and writing off arrears in addition to uh, protection from evictions. Um, and now that sort of, you know, the limited sort of measures from the government have been you know, pushed into, you know, to taking um, uh, what, what the government have been pushed into sort of taking um, are all time to expire within weeks of one another. Um, and of course, you know, many are now warning of new homelessness crisis uh, to be unleashed uh, just before the winter. Um, I've been working uh, with the Labour Homelessness Campaign and I've been calling for immediate action to prevent mass homelessness um, and the destitution of those who have been housed in emergency accommodation during the pandemic. Um, some hotels that have been housing people um, experiencing homelessness have already closed and street homelessness numbers are growing as some become sort of newly homeless as well. And, you know, without assurances that local authorities have a duty and, and, and funding to provide long-term accommodation to all rough sleepers. There are fears that homelessness numbers could spike. And, you know, we've had decades of racist sort of dehumanizing policies that deny migrants basic rights. We're seeing how the hostile environment has resulted in many migrants, in particular being left destitute and at greater risk of infection. So, you know, homelessness and migrant rights organisations as a result are continuing to warn um, at the lack of clarity on the disgraceful, inhumane, no recourse to public fund rules as well. Um, now, we know um, that coronavirus cases are rising. Uh, vast swathes of the country are set to be, you know, under local lockdown, um, not least any rise in evictions, um, forcing people to go into overcrowded accommodation or homelessness could significantly contribute to an increased risk of COVID-19 infection. So, you know, housing really has to be enshrined as a human right rather than be treated as a commodity or an investment. Um, and one of the things that we're sort of thinking about and I wanted to sort of talk about was the, you know, the West Ray Genric debacle um, and how it's sort of further evidence that this government is more interested in serving billionaires rather than, rather than the interests of local people. Um, you know, just to give you an example, tax haven using Northern Shell, um, Northern and Shell, um, they have an ongoing clash with Tower Hamlets Council, and that's really shown that the system isn't fit for purpose and that we need transparency and accountability regarding planning processes. Um, my local council, Tower Hamlets Council's demand of 36% of affordable housing as compared to the 21% currently on offer on that scheme doesn't actually seem like a very good deal in the first place, to be honest. Um, especially when we consider that affordable um, doesn't really mean affordable. Um, and I sort of wonder, sort of, you know, why is it that discourse around housing in the mainstream is so blinkered and uninspiring? Why is it that authorities have to beg the private sector for crumbs? crumbs you know and that for every affordable home which i've said is not actually affordable we have to have at least two or more luxury flats that no one can you know no one locally could even begin to fantasize about affording and why do we let companies do their own viability assessments um 
and and that it's so accepted that in some cases 20% profit margins must be maintained so i can't actually understand why any development is actually going ahead locally um that has even one luxury property if i'm being honest you know given to hamdas's housing crisis um and you know our borough is so overcrowded and so densely populated and that you know obviously in places increase you know a, a huge amount of pressure on services so Therefore, sort of in the long run, we really need ambitious targets for social housing, council house building, um, requisitioning um, empty houses by compulsory purchase orders, I think, as well. And of course, rent controls as well to protect private renters all the time. Um, and, and, you know, apologies for the for the cliche, but we really need to imagine again. Um, and and that's that's really what we need to do uh, when it comes to housing. Um, and we'll just sort of talk about, um, you know, the... the um, housing in relation to Bain communities as well in the context of the pandemic. Um, three years after Grenfell, uh, a complete tragedy and catastrophe which exposed, you know, how little Black Lives Matter to the British establishment, there are still 300 high-rise residential and publicly owned uh, buildings with unsafe cladding, including in Tower Hamlets. Um, and this summer, Public Health England um, did an investigation into the dispropor disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on certain groups. And, and that really revealed that factors such as racism and social inequality may have contributed to increased risks of Bain communities catching and dying from the virus, including the alarming statistic that Bangladeshi people face around twice the risk of death. So, you know, it's it's no coincidence, in my opinion, that months later statistics published by the government indicated that households with the highest rates of overcrowding were from a Bangladeshi background at 24%. And workers of Bangladeshi heritage have the you know, lowest median hourly pay of any ethnic group and they're overrepresented in the most deprived neighbourhoods in England. The very areas really where deaths from COVID-19 occur at a double rate in, you know, in more affluent, affluent areas. So, you know, my constituency is one of the most diverse, um, you know, in, in the country, uh, where around two thirds of the population are from ethnic minority backgrounds with a large Bangladeshi population. Um, and it is one of the most deprived. And now we have suffered a huge percentage of excess deaths uh, due to COVID-19. And, you know, house, households with low income are more likely to be overcrowded or, you know, have damp problems uh, than higher income households because, they, they, you know, they can't afford to move to a larger house or to fix damp problems. Uh, and that's really relevant uh, because when we know that COVID-19 attacks the respiratory system, um, which can be compromised due to chronic exposure to damp conditions. Um, and, you know, the, the evidence points towards an increase in the mortality rate resulting from uh, ethnic minority people living in more densely populated, more polluted and more deprived areas, including more key workers. So um, since it's become sort of clear that the probability of being infected by COVID-19 is likely to um, be higher in close contact settings and that social distancing and self-isolation rules will be much more difficult uh, to uphold in overcrowded households. Um, it really should have been clear to anyone who really wanted to know, you know, if you really wanted to know um, for some time now that, you know, these systemic sort of 
economic inequalities mean that ethnic minority communities are at higher risk of being in poverty and are so particularly disadvantaged by the health crisis we are enduring. So, you know, structural racism really needs to be addressed and we need answers as to why BAME people um, are always forced to get the smallest slice of the cake, as it were. And, you know, we need to know why services for us are the first to be cut and why our lives right now are not being protected. Um, why is housing and houses for families in particular not being built for the wonderfully diverse population that already lives in our area? Um, so, so moving on now, um, I mean, you know, in the meantime, where we stand now, where we really can't leave tenants to rely on the charity and goodwill of their landlords. Um, you know, the lockdown has empowered a new wave of tenant action, often sort of effectively using Zoom, online forms and social media um, to really garner that, you know, support for their demands. Um, but whether it's sort of fundraising or eviction uh, resistance, collective rent negotiation or rent strikes and occupations, these are not new ideas or tactics. In East London, for example, we, we know that um, you know nothing's going to be given to us on a plate and we've had to fight hard and struggle for everything. And I just sort of want to touch upon, you know, back in sort of the 1970s and onwards in particular, housing was a really key issue faced by the Bengali community locally here and racial discrimination existed in, in housing allocations, uh, in homelessness, and there was a real lack of support from statutory authorities, um, which really forced people to seek alternatives. Uh, the community here really faced sort of constant threats uh, to their homes from city developers. And families in particular in, endured sort of appalling conditions in cramped, unsanitary uh, buildings, which often lacked sort of basic uh, amenities. And Bangladeshi people in particular, you know, really increasingly began to squat in, in houses and organise uh, themselves and that you know that really makes me sort of think about you know that time and and where we are now you know by the by the late, late 80s uh, there were at least sort of five Bangladeshi community-based housing cooperatives in, in Tower Hamlets and that just to kind of think what that organizing was able to sort of achieve um, and I just want to end on on the note that you know it's it's in this tradition and many others like it that we really need to mobilize a movement from bottom up um, that can defend what we have won so far and demand even more. Thank you. Wow, wow. Uh, look, the discussion, <laughs> the discussion today is about what are the basic essentials of the sort of society that we want to create and what we need. Apsani, you've set a heck of an agenda there. Um, Nikki, what's the word for wonderful? How, what's the sign for wonderful? It was wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. Um, can I just raise one thing you, you, you put in there as well, which I think uh, you've raised before, and I think it's absolutely critical. We do need to send a message out to the rest of the Labour Party in particular, for our movement more widely. Um, you, you related housing to racial inequality, and I'm, I'm so pleased you did that but no recourse to public funds. You raise that as well. Let us just make it clear from our perspective to the rest of the movement, we expect Labour to commit itself to scrapping 
banning this whole thing of no recourse to public funds. It's a basic humanitarian demand. And I think we've got to make sure that the Labour Party stands proud on that issue that you've raised. And I know you've raised it consistently. I'm grateful for that. Let's move on. Our next speaker, again, is one of our new members of Parliament. Just impressive. If people saw him this week at Prime Minister's questions, he raised directly the issue he wants to talk about with Boris Johnson, which is about food poverty and food security. Um, it's Ian Byrne. Ian has been working on this issue. Um, he's been working on it in a whole range of ways. One is through fans for food banks um, and with his own local football club. I won't mention the football club that we both support, but there you are. That I won't mention their name, the ones, that they, the fact that they won the premiership. But never mind, we won't go into that. But, um, but also, He's been raising the issue about the continuation of support, food strategy, et cetera, not just during the pandemic, but in the long term. And if we're going to talk about the basic essentials of what a decent society, a social society would look like, food and healthy food and the supply of healthy food has got to be key. Over to you, Ian. Thank, thanks, John. Thanks for that uh, introduction. And yeah, uh, it's Liverpool, isn't it? <laughs> Uh, thanks very much to the World Science Forum for, for giving me this opportunity to speak today. I'm quite humbled to be on this platform with so many fantastic comrades and uh, what a brilliant uh, contribution by Epsana. Uh, and fully agree with everything that she's just said. Uh, absolutely magnificent uh, opening. So follow that. It might be a little bit difficult. But I want to just uh, talk about, as John said, food insecurity and maybe what we can do as a movement, as the left, uh, to look at what the solutions are post-COVID. So I'm, I'll, I'll bring up a few things and I'm sure there'll be lots to discuss, but I'll crack on uh, if you don't mind. So the, I just want to read something uh, which uh, Philip Alston uh, wrote in 2017 when he done the report on what was actually happening within this country. The bottom line is that much of the glue that has held together British society since the Second World War has been deliberately removed and replaced with a harsh and uncaring ethos pursued more as an ideological than an economic agenda. And I think I, can, I can't sum up as good as, as that, how he done that in, in such a in, in short paragraph. He absolutely nailed it, uh, what was actually happening in this country. And we are living through a humanitarian crisis, which is affecting millions of our citizens every day. But it's a crisis of food poverty born out of the political choices and systemic failures which has been created over the last four decades. And I feel now that during COVID, we're at a tipping point uh, with that for so many in our communities who are facing food insecurity, over, built up over the last 10 years. But as I say, over, uh, during the COVID period, what we're seeing now is millions, millions more thrown into what other millions have faced over the last 10 years. So just to back that up, we've got the social trust reporting, an 81% increase for emergency food parcels this uh, over this period of COVID from the from from the same time last year. This 122% rise in food parcels given out to children over the last 12 months compared to last year. I mean these are absolutely damning because we've seen the rise of food poverty since 2010. The correlation between what the Office of Budget Responsibility reports, which was a 36 billion cut to social security has led to the explosion of food banks 
of food insecurity. And what we've seen is the rise of food banks from hundreds in 2010 to thousands in 2020. And it's absolutely shameful. And what disgusted me yesterday, to be honest, was it was David Cameron. Uh, I think he's got a booth coming out and he's reporting that he worked in his local food bank in Chipping Norton during the COVID period. And I don't know what he's expected us to do because this is the architect uh, of austerity and what he actually implemented is what I'm going to talk about today. And we've seen it, the rise from 2010 to 2020. But the question I want to pose to people watching now is how can we reverse this shameful growth? Uh, as socialists, how can we affect the change our class and our country so desperately succeed? It requires, sorry, post-COVID to shape a society that can reverse the damage so future generations do not face the same callous environment that's been created since 2010. So now I've got the opportunity in Parliament uh, to, to, to speak about these issues. I had the opportunity on Wednesday, my first Prime Minister's questions, and I asked Johnson uh, two questions on two issues which I feel as though are extremely important into, into linking into this debate. I asked him about the local welfare assistance, which shamefully has been absolutely decimated. And we've got research by the Children's Society, which says there's been an 80%, 86% cut uh, since 2010 in uh, local welfare assistance. It was £250 million. Pounds, and in 2019, there was £41 million spent on it. Now, just think about that, because that fund is set up specifically to help the most vulnerable in society that have fallen through the nets. And it's targeted by but was targeted by councils extremely effectively to help people out who needed the help most. Absolutely decimated by this government. Uh, shamefully, in Liverpool, we've got Councillor Jane Corbett, who's our Assistant Mayor for Tackling Fairness and uh, sorry, tackling poverty and, and fighting for fairness. And, and she's one of my colleagues in Everton. Uh, I'm still a councillor in Everton. And she's absolutely magnificent in what she does. And she outlines it far better than I can. The government's long-term and systematic dismantling of council funding, particularly in the most disadvantaged areas of the country, severely hindered local authorities' abilities to respond to household and desperate need of support. So once again, we're seeing this pernicious policy-making targeting the most vulnerable in society. So that's why he uh, brought this up at Prime Minister's questions. Working with the fantastic organisations like the Children's Society, CPAG, Joseph Brown, the Trussell Trust, calling for the, the, to, for the reinstallation of the 250 million that, that has been cut away post-COVID. So that safety net is there. But I want to touch on something which maybe could have stopped that cut happening, which is a change in law, which is bringing in the right to food into legislation. And then at PMQs, I asked Johnson to sit down, work with me and other agencies and look at how we can implement the right to food into law. We also sit on the EFRA committee. We asked could we have that put into the report? Because we've got Henry Dimbleby's looking at the National Food Plan. They agreed, it's gone into the report as an ask for, for something to be explored with the right for food. And people are still probably thinking what the, the right for food, you know, what's he talking about? Well, as John mentioned at the start of 2000, 2019 manifesto, 
was 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 a thing of beauty in my eyes and i included a, a commitment for the right to food as a commitment to end the scandal of food hunger and food banks so the right to food would if it's enshrined into law it'll give clear obligations create mechanisms to set positive targets and monitor progress introduce avenues to make governments uh, agencies actually accountable for their actions so their policies and if they violated them we could then challenge the government so we'd ensure that the government whoever was in charge whatever the whatever party was within government at the time to refrain from policies that would violate the right which would then enhance the ability to secure the right to food for all our citizens across the country so many of the policies which have been implemented by uh, the coalition and the Tories would have been able to be challenged. So the five-week wait for universal credit would have, would have been allowed to be challenged. The cuts to uh, welfare assistance fund that was just outlined would have been able to be challenged. So this, for me, is fundamental to where we need to go. We could use the right to food as a foundation to rebuild the welfare safety net in the aftermath of the COVID crisis. And that, for me, is something which we should all aspire to. We must, as a left, I firmly believe this. We must be using every lever to achieve this, but it won't happen overnight. So meanwhile, what can we do in the immediate uh, here and now with regards how we create something which can create more food security for our class and our communities? John touched on it before. I think the solidarity shown during the COVID epidemic has been it's been heartwarming. It's been one of the one of the positives to come out of this horrible period in our history. And I think we can draw real strength uh, from what we've actually achieved as, as communities over this period by coming together and obviously completely at odds with the ideology of Thatcher, you know, with their famous quote on society, at odds with how Philip Alston seen, how he's seen the society going and talking about you know, an uncaring ethos. Well, I think many communities uh, across the country during COVID have actually rejected that ethos, rejected that ideology and come together. And it's an opportunity. Even in Liverpool as a community, we reacted far quicker. We couldn't make it the government. So, you know, on, on, the, on the ground, we, effect, we acted extremely quickly to put systems in place which would make sure that the people who didn't have the ability to get food ready to be shielded and to fuel poverty, uh, we made sure that they were targeted so what we did, I, I, no, I am going to speak about transport food banks because it's an organisation deal to be created in 2015. Uh, it's grown, shamefully grown, if I'm honest, uh, to where we are now. But what we did during the COVID, uh, start of the COVID pandemic, we realised that our operation couldn't, uh, it couldn't carry on as it was because we collect through the football matches, the football matches had been halted. So what we did is, we pulled together the consortium of groups in uh, March, no, February, March, of community groups, sporting institutions, the city council to come together and create a hub which would then create food parcels for thousands of people across the city uh, during the pandemic. But the model was created using solidarity and not charity. And we're keen to emphasize that solidarity, not charity. So we bought local businesses and we created a nutritious food package which went, as I said, right across the uh, city. And that collaboration, which is the ethos of Fanta Food Bank, is something which we've grafted 
during the COVID into a community response. And it's something to say with it, we're extremely proud of that we've done in Liverpool. And as I say, we couldn't wait an hour for the government. So moving on from that sort of like initial coming together in the crisis, how can we use that to build something post-COVID for our communities? And I think I've been working on, on this with, with a number of agencies and we have no way we've got any, any uh, we can't say we've got a solution, but we've got ideas which so we can build solutions. So the lack of affordable, nutritious and healthy food has a direct and devastating impact on so many uh, across our communities, health and well-being and people with limited resources, obviously linked against the poverty issue, linked against government policy, find it difficult to access food, uh, which is healthy and nutritious, and sometimes we fall into what's affordable, which is processed food. So people in deprived areas are more likely to become obese, suffer with di uh, diet-related illnesses. I think there's a prevalence of excess weight, 11% higher in uh, less affluent communities than more affluent communities. So there's a huge health inequality. So how can we tackle that and empower communities to tackle that and not wait for the government, not wait for any government uh, to come up with solutions? What can we do from the grassroots ideas from our communities which can aid our communities? And I think this is something which I'm really, really interested in developing and working with uh, groups across the country. So locally developed community food plans, it improve community-based local food systems, supply vital food education and aid more nutritious food into our communities and plans uh, would encompass local food markets, community gardens, community shops, kitchens, allotment management, educate, train local people on household food management, healthy diets, food cultivation skills and it's something which we're extremely uh, eager to, uh, to build on because I think we think we do think this is the future. Local food networks have been around for a long time. There's thousands of small scale local food initiatives across the country doing absolutely magnificent jobs, but what potential they can give us by bringing it together under an, an umbrella. I mean, I firmly believe the Labour Party should be tapped into this uh, and tapped into this on the grassroots level and building in communities. So in my constituency in West Derby at the moment, Detailed works looking uh, going on at the moment. We want to support local food network, link allotments, schools, food banks, food pantries, community enterprises, community kitchens together in a coordinated, holistic approach, providing education, empowering people to engagement, which is key, and offering a solution and access to food with dignity and humanity. By encouraging this development and growth of this network, they provide the potential for local people to move from being passive consumers to being active participants in their own food, uh, local food economics. And this is absolutely crucial. We want the right to food to embody this shift from charity to solidarity, from donations to collaborations and empowering communities. Building solidarity is a fundamental part of this process and should be something which we, as a left movement, encourage grow and work on uh, bringing together. And, you know, I think we should involve, invest in local people, but what an opportunity we've got. You know, we've got over half a million members in the Labour Party at the moment. We've got many, many other left socialist networks out there. And I think this is a fundamental right because we're going to face over the next three to six months with the, potentially the end of furlough, a second spike. We're just going to face more and more issues 
and there's nothing more important than putting food on the table for people in our communities. And I think by bringing people together under the umbrella of mutual aid, socialist movements, it's what I feel so passionately that we've got to do. And the local developed community food plan for me are something which is the embodiment of socialist values and something we should build on in all our communities. And what is certain that if we had this in place and the truth out of the manifesto was going to build on this, it was going to build on local food networks, we would have been in a far better place to face the challenges of COVID-19. And the implementation of these two small parts of the solution which I spoke about today would roll back the incessant growth of food insecurity over the under the Tory government. And as a nation, we cannot continue to fail millions of people with life expectancy rates, differences of 10 years in the same city, Kensington and Liverpool to Kensington and London, over 10, uh, 10 years life expectancy differences. And we simply need more levelling up. We need more uh, equality. And I feel as though what I've just outlined there could actually help to move us in the right direction because our children are being raised with parents in survival mode at the moment due to food poverty and for me the only radical only radical socialist policies offers the answers to fix our broken society and i'll finish on that thanks very much thanks ian <clears throat> sam how do you sign brilliant that's it that's it good good brilliant absolutely brilliant ian absolutely terrific and the detailed work that ian has done he's willing to share with comrades so that they can start looking at what they do locally as well uh, thanks ian actually my great aunt was deaf and my my dad used to sign but they always used to say he signed in a scouse accent bizarre anyway our next speaker our next speaker look you know our next speaker nadia whittam nadia this week i don't know whether people saw it but it was just brilliant nadia whittam who went back to work as a carer during the pandemic no wages just did app commitment then exposed the lack of ppe got hammered by the tories and the press really really tried to destroy her and this week it was proven she was exactly right it, she made the call and she did it courageously it was interesting. I didn't hear any apologies from those Tory MPs that were attacking her. She's a, I tell you, she's a heroine and she's really, as a, another one of the new MPs have made her mark. She wants to talk about the crisis in social care and where we go from here. Nadia. Thank you so much, John. And thank you to TWT and to Claim the Future, um, to Apsana and Ian, who both inspire me and it's, it's going to be a difficult act to follow speaking after them and particularly to John for putting on this series. Um, I'm looking forward to you, John, being like the Tony Benn of the backbenches of our times. I was a care worker before I was elected and I returned to care work during the pandemic because I knew how much social care had already been strained by 10 years of cuts to the tune of 7.7 .7 billion since 2010. Um, and I wanted to help my former colleagues as a practical act of solidarity because I knew that the burden of COVID would not just be falling on the social care sector, but would be falling on low paid, predominantly women, also disproportionately migrant and women of colour workers. 
as John said, and you know, we we all saw it in the news, why so I don't need to repeat that, but I spoke out about the lack of PPE and because I was on a zero hours contract as I was um, when I worked previously as a care worker, I could be effectively sacked at the drop of a hat. Now, if this can happen to an MP, somebody with the financial privilege and the platform that I have, imagine the level of insecurity precariousness and intimidation that all care workers experience on a daily basis. So after that, I invited care workers from across the country to contact me. And unsurprisingly, my experience wasn't a one-off. It was in fact, alarmingly prevalent across the care sector. People contacted me from the Northwest to Scotland, Northern Ireland, Wales, the South Coast. And they all told me about their experiences of a lack of PPE, testing, safety that they faced on the front line during the pandemic and how poorly they felt treated, both by their employer, but also by the government. So I held a Zoom call for these whistleblowers, one that protected their anonymity. And that was a really emotional and profound moment for me. It was a really profound moment of solidarity, I think, for all of us. And now as a group, we're working together with trade unions um, and discussing our next steps as a campaign. Because I strongly and passionately believe that we have to use this moment. We've got to galvanize it to to improve the situation in social care for workers for users and recognizing that this is a moment that has brought social workers um carers to um to the forefront of public consciousness because we can never forget that the rights of care workers and the functionality of the care sector is all at the same time, a feminist issue, it's a social justice issue, a workers issue, and it's a migrants rights issue. And I think it's it's up to us to speak out on behalf of the thousands of workers who are less able to do so for themselves for fear of their livelihoods and losing their already very insecure employment. But also of course, to amplify the voices of those who are. Looking back at the last few months, it's it's clear to me, as it will be to all of you, that there needs to be a reckoning for the way that this workforce and the people who depend on care have been so tragically and chronically let down by this government during the pandemic. And when we're looking at rebuilding after COVID, of course, we've got to radically restructure the economy. But we also, we can't be returning back to normal because normal was broken for so many people. We need to transform the society that we live in and to create the world that we should have always had because this problem of vast poverty and inequality is not a new one, it's just one that's been 
exacerbated during COVID. So when the Prime Minister talks about building back better, it's really jarring that his vision completely excludes investment in care altogether. When I've got the statistics here, investment in um, the care sector is eight times less carbon intensive than the average of all industries. It would produce 30% less greenhouse gas emissions than construction and almost three times as many jobs, about two million jobs, whilst at the same time reducing the gender employment gap. That's research from the Women's Budget Group that they've made available to the government, but the government just hasn't listened. I want to move on by talking about what the future of social care should look like. COVID has obviously shown that it's not fit for purpose and why we need a resilient care sector. I've already said that 7.7 .7 billion has been cut from social care since 2010. And what we've got is a privatised, fragmented, very, very low union density sector. It's, it's short-termist, defined by competitive tendering processes where public money is used to subsidise private profit. But this crisis, this pandemic, I think also provides an exciting opportunity for us to, to reimagine what social care looks like, not as something that is separate from the rest of society that happens over there to other people who aren't like us, and not something that views people as helpless or inherently vulnerable, but as people who have been marginalised by the capitalist system that we live under, and people who should have agency. So I want to see a social care policy written by workers, users of social care, wider society, a social care policy that maximises people's autonomy. And I think that's often, we often talk about autonomy as being something that the private sector can, that only the private sector can be good at. Actually, the opposite is the case. Um, and we need to scrap I, th I think the private sector has absolutely no place in social care. We need to scrap top-down private services and, for that matter, not replace it with top-down state services, scrap outsourcing and embrace things like co-ops, like public social partnerships where the local state collaborates with not-for-profit organisations and that brings me to an important point, which is that this isn't just a question of funding. It's also about alternative democratic models of ownership, models of ownership that give people and communities power, essentially a model that means workers control and users control. And I'm really looking forward and committed to to working with people in this call, um, to looking for ways in Parliament that we can raise the economic and social benefits of a post-COVID recovery that centres on care. And even more importantly than that, amplifying 
all of the movements outside Parliament and workers who are demanding this. Thanks, everyone. Great, Nadia. Sam, what's the, what's the expression for terrific? Uh, that's it for me. That's it for me. Yeah, Nadia, I don't want to be the Tony Benn on the backbenchers. Actually, the, the person who reminds me most of Tony Benn is Jeremy. And I think that's the role he'll play, uh, inspiring and principled. And actually, also with a detailed comprehensive knowledge of a lot of the policy areas that we do. I think that's Jeremy's role, particularly on foreign policy. Um, I want to be the Bill Shankly of the left, bring the team together every. And um, I remember um, Bill always won. <laughs> anyway, look, a, we've got about 10 minutes. OK, um, there's a couple of questions. Well, there's more than that. There's a, a lot of questions. Let me just um, pick a, a few. Sorry, Charlie, who's t doing the tech work and not letting you know sooner. And look, on the, I'm going to fire these questions at different people. OK, um, Sylvia came in for you, Ian, and said, can, you, can I ask you to consider food insecurity in rural areas? She's writing about it. And John Solway added to that. Uh, I think this is an interesting question. You've referred to it to a bit, Ian. Um, John Solway said, do food banks actually underwrite systemic food inequality rather than challenging it? That's to Ian. Let me just go on. I'll bring everyone in if I can. In terms of um, Nadia, there's a good question from Ian Crompton. What role do you see as service users having in the design and control of social care services? For example, a cooperative radical democratic co-production model. That's a bit of a mouthful for me as well. Um, and then Apsana, the actually was a good one here. Um, we Adrian Litvinov said we may be witnessing the hollowing out of town centres. Does this raise an opportunity for making them more livable, more accessible to low-income groups for living in and workplaces too? Okay, if I we've got. We've got 10 minutes, so really we've got about a couple of minutes on each of those questions to responses. Can I, can I bring um, Ian in first on the food bank questions? Yeah, uh, I'm certainly happy to work with anyone regarding uh, rural poverty, John. So uh, I forget the, the lady's name. She wants to get in touch. We'd be delighted to have a chat with her. Also, yeah, yeah uh, I'd, like, I'd, I'd be delighted to, uh, to learn more about that and work alongside her. With regards to the underbiting food inequality, absolutely. We we took we took a, a little bit of stick and we set up fan support and food banks and rightly so because people thought it would have done that. But for me, um, the old the adage me and Dave use is the miners strike in '84 when he was starving our class uh, into uh, out of existence, and we feel as though it was exactly the same. So it was either do something about it, use this as a stick and plaster, and try and build the solidarity, collaboration, and education, uh, then to move forward and empower local communities. Hopefully. As I outlined, we're on the cusp of, of doing something to uh, to address this situation. So I think it had to be done. Uh, and what we do now is we move on to the next evolutionary stage, which is empowering communities to take control of the food, their own food security, which is something I look forward to doing, John. Thanks, Ian. Absana, could you come on come in on this question about the potential for there's the revamping of town centres so that people can live in them and how they make them more, I suppose, livable overall. There's an opportunity there, isn't there? 
I think in some ways there are. Um, and I think we, we have to acknowledge in a lot of ways how I think the current economic landscape, you know, has posed so many challenges and we are going to see lots of sort of, um, I suppose, independent businesses and, and local the local economy in some ways being squeezed as a result of, of, of the pandemic. Um, but I do think there are definitely, you know, that, that flip side is, is quite important to actually look at how we can, you know, um, broaden out from that. And I think there are, I think there are opportunities and I think um, particularly in terms of sort of um, more small to medium sort of retailers and, and, and in, the, in the town centres, um, protecting that and, and thinking about how they're supporting their um, workforce. Um, and, you know, I think we saw sort of, we've seen sort of really big sort of collapses of, of um, some uh, big businesses and, and big retailers over the years. Um, and, you know, we know, you know, through through the last decade as well, we've seen, you know, sort of really big sort of victims of, of recessions. But I think this is an opportunity to really actually understand what our local towns and communities actually mean um, and um, ensuring that sort of those redundancies and, and workers are not sort of left to foot uh, the bill. Thanks. Thanks, Absana. Can I quickly bring Naja in? Role of service users in the design of the future of care services and this issue of co-production, cooperation. Where are you at on this, Nadia? <laughs> Ian, this is a typical you question. Ian lives around the corner from me and we often have this conversation. Um, it's a very good question. I think I'd like to see service users working with workers and also the wider community because I think that social care services shouldn't be something that are shot away somewhere else um, to write what they need because they're the experts in social care as people who um who rely on it and engage with it um i think yeah a, a cooperative democratic co-production model is a good idea and i think that that's something that the labor party and the labor movement trade union should be facilitating thanks nadia that's great um look i think this has been a really i think it's been a really interesting session um uh, what I, the reason for bringing it together under the auspices of Claim the Future and the World Transformed is just to demonstrate the sort of optimism that we've got, both in terms of the way in which we can develop, and actually, yes, all of us on the left lead the thinking for our movement for the future, but also I just also wanted to just make sure people recognise that there's this new generation that's come through in our movement that is that are now being elected to key positions and if you look as i say the new mps that have come in in the last election in particular have just been fantastic um we built upon the previous generation the richard bergens the, the becky long baileys cat smith and others who came in the time before marshall took over those and you can see now that within the parliamentary labor party for the first time in quite a long time there's some really solid left-wing very extremely talented people who are articulating the voices of our members now, and I'm I'm confident for the future. But there's a lot of work to be undertaken, and you've heard today sort of detailed work that's being undertaken um, by those MPs working with the various groups that alongside us within the party and the and the trade union movement. That's what claim the future is all about. Um, I'll just make a couple of plugs. There's a couple of other uh, claim the future events 
um, this week. On, mon on Monday, there's a discussion. We're bringing together a group of, um, again, radical social thinkers, young radical social thinkers, to talk about the, 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 the concept of claiming the future and what sort of future we want. Ash Sarker, Christine Berry, Andrew Fisher. Uh, and then on the Tuesday, uh, which is a bit of a surprise, um, I'm uh, hosting a, an In Conversation event with Gordon Brown, who's actually last week came out uh, with a, a program around full employment, which was pretty radical and which has gained a lot of support, which again, we want him to be able to outline that. And I think there's a real potential of building a, a, a sizable coalition for that to be endorsed by the, the Labour Party leadership, of course, but also for us to campaign on right the way across our community and trade union movement. Just a few announcements before I go. Um, and thanks. Uh, remember, lots more events on TWT20. They're filling up very quickly as well. Be sure to register. Make sure you've registered the festival at theworldtransformed.org stroke register slash register. So theworldtransformed.org slash register. And then go to the individual event you'd like to register from the program. And finally, um, if you've enjoyed this session and would like to help TWT be sustained in their work, it's really it's important and critical work. Um, and it isn't just at this festival; it's beyond that too. Please do consider them at, and it'll be on the um, website. But it's https stroke colon stroke the world slash support slash dot. Okay. I'm hopeless at reading these things out, but they're all, they'll all be up on the chat and also um, Google the World Transformed. Give us your support. I'd like to thank Nikki and Sam. Look, there's campaigning now to be done around the BSL and signers to support signers in the future. We need to get behind that campaign because it's an essential service. Thanks, Nikki. Thanks, Sam. You're absolutely wonderful. Thanks for everyone attending today. Charlie and all the others and all have given us the technical support today. I'm, I'm really, really grateful. Um, and please do enjoy the rest of TWT and come along to our joint meetings with Claim the Future. Solidarity. View the full TWT 20 programme and become a supporter today to help us deliver political education all year round at theworldtransformed.org